Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream and supported this season by Patagonia. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. What's up, everybody? This is Matt Prindeville, CEO of Upstream. Just wanted to say hello and how grateful we are to have your support and to let you know we've got some awesome new things in store for you with the podcast, including more episodes like this one that are live stream panel conversations. You'll also see some guest hosting for me moving forward where I talk with other leaders in the break free from plastic movement. And we'll even be bringing you some highlights from some of the many great webinars popping up these days in the increasingly virtual world that we find ourselves in. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned to the Indisposable podcast. And I'll talk with you soon. Thanks so much, Matt. And I'm pretty excited to be with so many of you today who have decided to tune in for this conversation, which I think signals how important this work is that we're all involved in. And uh, we're here to discuss the safety and future of reuse in these unprecedented times. And as Matt mentioned, on the safety front, we know there's a lot of confusing and misleading information out there, especially about surface transmission of COVID. And that's a big concern for those of us working on throwaway culture. So we're really grateful to have Ben Lockwin with us, who's an epidemiologist and COVID-19 consultant for the CDC. And he's going to help us understand the fact, the fiction, and the latest science with regard to COVID transmission and reusables. And as to the future of reuse, we're very lucky to have two visionary entrepreneurs who've been leading groundbreaking projects this last year that are helping build the reuse economy we all want and need. So we have Tom Zaki, who's founder and CEO of TerraCycle, which gave birth to Loop, a partnership launched about a year ago that provides reusable containers for major brand products online and soon in stores around the world. And we also have Lindsay Hole, who's CEO of Dispatch Goods, which is another very new company providing a very important service of reusable containers for takeout and delivery. And together, these businesses are piloting some of the key solutions to the challenges we have for waste management here in the U.S. So without any further ado, I want to jump right in. And Ben, I'd like to start with you because I think that fears around safety of reuse versus single use is a major concern for everyone right now, both in public health decision-making and for those who care about plastic pollution. So I understand that you personally have worked on vaccine candidates for SARS, as well as another coronavirus. You've been involved with epidemiological modeling, case tracing and assessment, training clinicians for the current pandemic. So you have a really high level of expertise here, even among health professionals. And you've been speaking out in the news a lot lately about the misleading public health advice you're seeing come even from the WHO and from doctors. So tell us a little bit about your understanding of the real risks of surface transmission and why so many doctors are offering such different information. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, I think a lot of it boils down to uh, a confluence of factors. So there's the issue of a nonstop media barrage amid all of this current pandemic. Um, and of course, you know, with enhanced media scrutiny brings um, the opportunity for sources of misinformation to creep in from all directions. Um, we haven't had a confirmed case of contact transmission of SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19 since this has all been occurring. So certainly there's the theoretical possibility that you can self-inoculate by touching a contaminated surface and then touching your eyes, your nose, or your mouth. But we haven't seen that happen in reality. Um, you know, what we have known for many months is that this is primarily respiratory transmission 
vector for this particular virus. So it's respiratory droplet particles. Um, it's larger droplet particles, which are five to 10 micron. It's also these smaller ones. And then they persist in the air for some period of time. The larger ones drop faster, the smaller ones circulate longer. But really there isn't much as far as um, a surface contact issue that we've been seeing in actual practice. I think maybe to address superficially anyway, your, your second point there, as far as the misinformation that spreads, you know, the WHO, I think they've had a lot of work on their plate as have our CDC in the US, but when SARS-CoV-2 uh, was originally detected towards the end of 2019, they were saying that there shouldn't be any closure of any borders initially, that it was a contact transmission set of communiques and there wasn't so much worry about respiratory transmission. And then kind of the next wave of misinformation that occurred was um, that people who are currently infected and have active COVID-19 infections should avoid ibuprofen for fevers. And kind of, you know, in the string of time that's gone on and recommendations, each of those has largely been debunked as uh, misinformation more than accurate information. So I think the CDC for the U.S. Um, at the moment has really done a good job with keeping up with the best available science and evidence that we have about uh, ways the public can protect themselves. And so if you may remember back towards the end of February, when this was really all very nascent and getting into March, it was really about hand sanitizing, hand washing, surface cleaning. Um, and it took about really four to six weeks before uh, a lot of the media was covering the real causal chain of getting infected by this and worrying about wearing masks and not congregating in public. Um, but I think, you know, there was a lot of that information available even back to January and before with coronaviruses. So it was more a matter that misinformation travels more quickly than truth does. Mm, which is unfortunate for us. You know, I, I was reading an article where you were quoted talking about that you know, in grocery stores, for example, the that some of the behaviors are of wiping down everything is more symbolic ritual without preventative value. And, you know, for those of us in this movement, there's significant consequence to some of those symbolic rituals, like some places banning reusable bags and cutlery and things like that. So um, could you say a little bit more about that symbolic ritual piece? And then I want to turn to hear from Lindsay and Tom about how these uh, these myths and realities are affecting their businesses in real time. Yeah, uh, if you've got infected individuals who are in the same volume of air, sharing the same volume of air, that's really where the predominant risk lies. So, so as far as the reusable bags are concerned, as far as surfaces are concerned, the, the risk is extraordinarily low. So, you know, I think for the stores to spend so much time um, as they had for at least the first four to six weeks on worrying about surface contact and the conveyor belts and the reusable bags to now where we're at, where there still is probably still too much focus on that kind of ritual, but at least now a lot of locations are talking about there has to be only a certain number of people allowed in the stores at the same time so that people aren't too congregated. Um, you know, that, that to me is a, a smarter set of preventive measures than, than the surface contact. So, I mean, we're getting somewhere. Unfortunately, it took a long time. And, you know, with some of the discussions here, 
it's come at a cost of um, rolling back on some of the bans for uh, disposable items, which you know puts people potentially at greater risk, and certainly in the environment. And and you know potentially the other panelists have a lot more to say on that. Yeah. Great, Ben. Thanks so much. And I think that's a really helpful context to kick off our conversation. So I do want to turn to Lindsay and Tom now and hear from each of you just some reflections on, so how has this epic disruption of COVID affected your businesses? Um, and I know there might be a mix of for better and for worse, given the nature of your business with people staying at home. And how are you handling the communication challenges that are coming out of um, everybody's concerns around contact materials? Um, Lindsay, let's start with you. I know you have an interesting survey you did of your customers that changed your behavior a little bit. Um, so we are working to create a reusable system to replace single-use products in the takeout and delivery uh, space. And we started in the downtown takeout crowd. So we partnered with large companies and they would um, purchase dispatch memberships for their employees. And then at the participating restaurants downtown, employees could request the reusable uh, food containers to go. And obviously that came to a screeching halt almost overnight in that there was no downtown lunch crowd and most of our restaurant partners closed. So for us, it was a pretty major disruption and we kind of like were, were flat footed for, for a few days, tried to figure out what, what should we do? How can we help? And uh, the first thing we did was um, create like a co-op where people donated their empty like spray, squeeze, and hand pump bottles. And then we partnered with the distillery to provide hand sanitizer for, for communities. We washed them at our, at our commercial um, facility where we, do, where we did all of our dishwashing prior. And in that time, it gave us a couple weeks to really get a gauge of if people still wanted reusables with food. And also it helped us learn when we are doing delivery and pickup what this could look like in the delivery space, which isn't something that we had tackled yet. Um, so we um, did like kind of longer interviews with people um, over a couple weeks and found that out of about the 30 people we interviewed that wanted reusables prior to COVID, 28 still wanted them. So, and, and those that didn't want them prior to COVID still didn't want them. So it gave us uh, confidence in the, in the public in that they're reasonable, that they understand science in that they may not want reusables if they're not sure what the cleaning process is, but with education and transparency about how the dish goes through the cycle, they were still incredibly on board with this. So um, with that, we decided, well, this is a really good opportunity for us to test how reusables could work in food delivery. And so we launched with one of our corporate partners as a test pilot two weeks ago, and we're expanding from there. And so it's been encouraging. And the participation rate with the employees of our corporate partner have been really high. And the feedback we're getting has been really uh, exciting because people are seeing the waste accumulate in their homes and really want feeling helpless. And so we're providing them another solution. Great. Thanks, Lindsay. Yep. Tom, how about what's going on with the loop? You know, as, as background for anyone who doesn't know us, you know, TerraCycle, uh, which is the parent company for Loop, that's all about recycling, hard to recycle materials and integrating waste back into products. And recycling is, is uh, definitely seeing a short-term negative effect, uh, but also some big macroeconomic challenges that, if interesting, we can look at. 
on reuse uh, for Loop. So Loop is a reuse platform today live in France and the US. So that's where I'm pulling any data from. Um, and I would say, you know, overall, uh, actually, we've seen a surge. So uh, in both France and the US, where Loop is available through major retailers online, we have seen uh, March was the best month in sales in, in the entire short history of the program, short because it's only launched in May. And April will beat uh, March as well, so set another record. I, I do give a lot of credit to Tailwind on the uh, e-com sort of movement and people shopping e-com, so I can't say that's all credit to, to us. But what we are not seeing are consumers, individuals concerned about reuse whatsoever. In fact, uh, we look very carefully in consumer insights and we look at our uh, customer service trends and so on. It's not even trending in the top 10 questions people ask us. Where it's trending aggressively is what journalists ask us. Um, it's been almost three interviews a day for the past you know, you know, number of days and it's always this question of what is the future of reuse vis-a-vis -vis COVID. I think this goes to Dr. Ben's uh, point on, uh, you know, it, it's, I think journalists trying to drum up because, you know, themes that they uh, that they can write articles around and get lots of clicks. And I, I totally get it. Recycling, interestingly, is taking a massive punch to the face right now, globally. This is not just in the US, but partly because, well, we're consuming way more disposable goods from, you know, takeout packaging all the way to, uh, to just more packaged food consumption and packaged goods consumption. And recycling um, has always been a challenging business model. It's been a declining industry for the past 10 years, partly because of low oil prices and other reasons, but oil is at a historic low. Uh, it's even harder to find end markets for recyclers. So recyclers are getting a phenomenal negative effect. Um, now, what's sort of interesting is a lot of waste management companies, and for full disclosure, we're partly, uh, we have strategic investors who are these large waste management companies, you know, from Waste Connections to Suez. And they, um, in many cases, especially in North America, never really wanted to be offering recycling services anyway. They were more often forced by their clients, which could be municipalities or buildings or whatever, to offer recycling services. So they're using COVID as an excuse to shut down recycling. And uh, a lot of the leaders I've spoken with are skeptical on how many of those will come back. Many will, but a lot will not come back. And uh, so I think in a way that's gonna be tailwind for the reuse movement because we're gonna wake up after COVID with uh, thinking about the environment more, maybe winning on climate change just a little bit. Uh, but having a much bigger waste issue. And I think that's a great opportunity for reuse to really uh, uh, push. The other thing that's important to note, and this is something that's really resonated with, with journalists and talking to them is single-use packaging isn't inherently safe or unsafe. Reusable packaging isn't inherently safe or unsafe. It's how you deploy those systems that make them inherently safe uh, or unsafe. So, you know, uh, you can wrap an apple in a plastic wrap. It doesn't mean that it was washed or it's, uh, it's good. And you could have uh, incredible cleaning on objects and you never consider it. Yeah. To go back to something that Tom had said earlier, uh, if we're worried about the coronavirus or having uh, a lot more cases of COVID-19 and in so doing, we destroy the planet at the same time. The net result is we're not in a better position overall. It's kind of like the saying, that's like saying your side of the boat is sinking. So whether it's COVID-19 or whether it's the environmental concerns, uh, they kind of go hand in hand out of necessity and we can't throw one thing away because of the other. You know, we, we certainly can't mortgage our future, even the short-term future, because of what we're concerned about now. Yeah. 
You know, another little technical question for you, Ben, that has come up a couple of times in the Q&A was around bulk bins, because a, a big part of the practice of reuse in terms of shopping is bulk bins, a lot of which have been shut down in this time. So I've also saw a question of, are there studies that people could point to? I think a lot of people on this call would love to be able to take some of what you're saying and, um, you know, put it in fact sheets and that sort of thing to help help counter the myths that are out there. So do you have uh, comments on the bulk bin, specific study recommendations. I know it's kind of early, they may not exist yet, but anything you can offer there and then we'll come back to Tom and Lindsay. Uh, yes, I have a preliminary answer and then a follow-up quick question. So I would say that any sort of those more discrete surface studies are still ongoing. We, I mean, we've got, regardless again of what the news media may tell you, there's almost no information that we lack for as far as coronaviruses in general. These aren't new, we've known about them and categorized them for 60 plus years. Um, this is certainly a new strain, which is why it was called the novel coronavirus, where novel pertains to the strain, but we know lots about coronaviruses and there's been so much time and resource spent now on SARS-CoV-2, which is the, the particular taxonomic name for this coronavirus, that we already know quite a bit as far as how long it persists on surfaces, different surface types. So we're talking like 24 hours on paper and cardboard, two to three days on plastic and stainless steel. Um, and viruses are never in the first place alive. So why I say persist is because as soon as a virus deposits on a surface, it begins to degrade. And the more desiccant the surface is, like a cardboard or a paper, as long as the humidity is lower, let's say, it becomes much harder for us to be able to recover an active viral particle, which could then be used to infect somebody. So we know a lot about what's on surfaces, how long it can persist on surfaces, um, how cleanable surfaces are, and simple wipe downs with alcohol, just like with hand sanitizer work great. This particular virus is, is what's known as an enveloped virus. So it has a lipid bilayer around it. And this is why um, everyone's heard a lot about soaps and detergents, which work supremely well against this type of virus, not so much other kinds, but I mean, this is good for us. So if it's on your hands, if it's on a surface and you use simple soap and water, if you use an alcohol-based wipe down, for example, almost all of the entirety of any viral particles are degraded. So I guess that was kind of my answer. And my question is, I don't know specifically in the context of this discussion with these experts, what a bulk container refers to. So it's when you're going to the grocery store and you wanna get some rice, for example, and they have those bins and you bring your bag and you pull a lever and the rice drops down. Oh, into your bag. oh yeah, sorry. Okay, I would say in general, um, if folks can take one point away from this as far as surface contact is concerned, I would say, you can't be inoculated by this coronavirus by just touching a surface that has it on it. It has to not only be on the surface and viable and in enough quantity, but then you also have to bring the vector to your eyes, your nose, or your mouth in order to introduce it. If it's just on your hands, you can't be infected. So personal vigilance and hand behavior to me is kind of paramount. Because um, the reality is you'd have to introduce it to yourself from a surface unless somebody around you, again, has respiratory symptoms where then you can be infected. But I would say, you know, no problem, pull the lever um, as long as you're just vigilant about the rest of your shopping trip because there are 
thousands of other physical interactions you're going to have. So the bulk container is not a problem. Thank you. Yeah, the bottom line is the behavior piece. I think that's a great right. takeaway here. And I wanted to shift to talking about the economic side of this. I think we all know that the job loss that's happening in the U.S. right now is staggering, absolutely staggering. And love to hear you each speak to how you see the, the work you're doing in reuse being a resilience factor moving forward, both in and beyond COVID. So, I mean, for us, you know, uh, uh, both at TerraCycle on recycling and Loop on, on reuse, we're continuing. We haven't had to make any uh, layoffs and, in fact, are continuing to hire during this time. So we're in a very privileged position in that in that way. I, I think reuse is really exciting because it brings just even more jobs and more job opportunity uh, to bear uh, than recycling does and definitely even more than disposal, almost by uh, orders of magnitude. The biggest advice I can give on this idea of economics is if I think about my business or Lindsay, your business, you know, both of us serve uh, stakeholders, right? We're bringing, we are not the product or the, or the retailer. We are enabling product companies and retailers to enable reuse, whether in loop it's, you know, through packaged goods, whether Lindsay is through takeaway, you know, and so on. And there's many other brilliant examples. Um, what we've tried to do with a strategy internally, and so far it's been working quite well, is if you break the, uh, the business industry into three key sectors, you could call one sector a sector that is incredibly struggling right now because of reuse. That could be you know, everything from travel and leisure to entertainment, uh, you know, so on and so forth. That's one sort of sector. Then you've got the middle sector, uh, which is sort of you know, floating. And then you've got another sector, which is really winning right now because of uh, COVID, which is anyone who's selling packaged goods or the stores that sell those goods, right? So while a, uh, a clothing store may be, you know, uh, in a really bad situation, a grocery store is going to have the best year it ever had. And um, what's going to be really interesting, right now they're all incredibly busy just serving demand. So it's not really a good time to uh, be, you know, enabling new you know breakthrough ideas but what we have been hearing from all of them uh, we actually just got off the phone before this panel with one of the biggest grocery stores in europe who we're working with is that they are going to be doubling down on environment uh, as soon as uh, they can lift their heads above you know above the surface which is basically be equal to when COVID starts relaxing a little bit and the pressure on them goes down and they're going to be looking for ways to really push forward the agendas around zero waste and, and reuse and recycling um, and I think there's a really, really great opportunity to come in uh, at that time and target, especially those sectors that are winning in a very big way off of this, because they uh, they will be ready to spend and they're going to be ready to do uh, purposeful things. And so we've seen that actually tick up uh, at the moment during this process. And, you know, I think what's exciting, at least, is while the plastic industry, as you stated, you know, a, a few times is maybe leveraging this in the short term to, you know, lobby for the things that have been trending away, like shopping bags and other things, the overall public sentiment is in the favor of reuse in the long run, because that's really where the trends go. And in all the consumer insights we've seen from major consumer product companies on this topic who've been running it, it's reinforcing that approach. And I think 2021, 2020 will be a crap year, but 2021 will be a great year for reuse. And focus on that and get yourself to be able to be in 2021 without any major financial challenges or, or system problems uh, that, that you may have. Great. Um, I completely agree that, um, I mean, we're hiring as well right now. So I think with our previous model catering to, to tech companies and the, the takeout crowd, that obviously was very disrupted. But as we see this opportunity for delivery, um, we're hiring and we, our goal is to try to hire some of the um, furloughed workers from the restaurant industry, from some of our restaurant partners. 
um, to help keep those jobs local. And I do think reuse, uh, because of the fact that, um, you know, there's, there's a logistics component for us where we have to have like our, our hub close to the operations, we do get to create local jobs. And that's a really beautiful component of keeping these circular systems tight in, in, in communities. So that's been great. And I do think that just the workflow of how we're providing food orders for restaurants at a time they weren't getting them, which is in the morning or the night before, um, mm -hmm. we're able to have them uh, have more workers, but over a long period of time. Uh, like more hours of the day. And so that helps bring people to work without creating the density during only the rush. So as far as the, you know, the, the economic aspect of this, I do think that reuse is going to end up for the better out of this. And in fact, even in this kind of talking to some of the, the tech companies that we were talking to before, they're trying to think about how they can do pre-packaged reusable meals rather than buffet style meals, which were the norm for the companies prior to COVID. So uh, we are obviously hoping that they choose to do reusables rather than single use, but it seems like they already had bought into this. And I, I agree kind of like what Tom was saying about the grocery stores. These companies already were kind of on the environmental movement prior to this. And I think that their dedication has has only increased from what I'm seeing um, during this the last couple months in that they see how we can make large systems change quickly and we need to stop having excuses for why we weren't doing it in the past. I think a lot of us saw that there was an article that came out recently saying that the CDC is gonna be recommending that when restaurants come on back online that they use disposable, not just menus, but disposable cutlery and plates. and. Um, We've had some side conversations in the break free movement about that. I think the best understanding is that has not been finalized, but that was what was in the draft. And so I think a lot of people are really curious to hear your thoughts on whether that makes sense. Related question, um, there's an also recommendations coming out for lids to be put on things to try to protect the food from contamination. And does that actually make sense? All right. So the CDC and other world health agencies have sort of boxed themselves into a corner. So there is the theoretical risk of a contact transfer, but the short answer again is it's primarily a respiratory transmission pathogen. So you're much more likely to get it in a restaurant circumstance by having people congregated nearby who are talking, coughing, sneezing, laughing, than from the utensils. The other question in my mind becomes if we if we recommend disposable menus, disposable utensils, disposable plates, etc. Who is putting these on the tables? So you're still going to have the same people who are touching now the disposables. And even if they're wrapped in plastic, like the fork knife spoon combos and the plastic wrap, you've now touched the plastic wrap to open it up, which was touched by the server. And so if I follow that chain of logic and causality, it's no different from having a, a, a stainless steel fork on the table that somebody's touched. And it's probably more risky because now you've got to open the cellophane, which, you know, you pull out the fork maybe upside down, you've touched the tines and it's maybe then inoculated the tip of the fork. Whereas if the cutlery was presumably placed on the table by the handle, you pick up the handle, sure, maybe if there's some surface transfer, but if you're using the cutlery the way it's intended, you're not transmitting that into your mouth. 
Um, one of the questions that's come up, um, and I, I kind of want to put two questions together here because we're closing time. One of the questions that's come up that I think both Tom and Lindsay can speak to is, how are you handling the sanitation piece and how are you communicating to customers about that? And then the other question I want to ask you guys is, how um, can we help you? How can those on the call, and there's literally hundreds of people who are involved in this movement in different aspects from policy to communications to, um, to grassroots organizing, what kind of support would help? Great, yeah. So we work out of a, a commercial kitchen um, and it's in a health department approved uh, facility and we follow the recommendations for what a restaurant would do. Um, which is a, a three component cycle wash, rinse, sanitize, um, but we do it twice. We soak our dishes in, in dishwashing fluid first. That's actually more to protect um, our employees so that when they're loading the dishwasher, that they're grabbing kind of pre-cleaned dishes. Um, and then the, the commercial dishwasher does a three cycle, um, I guess a three component cycle, which is wash, rinse, sanitize. And then we do a final soak in um, quaternary ammonia, which, which is the sanitization fluid. And then they are um, eventually, after they're done drying, um, they are loaded into a bin that's sealed for transportation to our restaurant partners. And the bin itself is washed through that same cycle that the dishes are so that everything is, is sealed and, and shipped out without any kind of um, contamination along the route. And right now, the only component of waste is what, what seals those bins, and we hand them over to the restaurants, and then the restaurants open and, and then can load them for the, in the food prep area. What was the second part of that question, or do you want me to? The second was, how can we help you? Oh, that's right. Um, so honestly, we're kind of early in this new, um, in this new space. We're always looking for people to, to test this new system, which is essentially us dropping off weekly meals and then um, picking up the reusables the following week. So um, if anyone in the Bay Area wants to participate in that system, we'll be doing kind of a, a slow rollout um, as we expand from our partners. And then we have a kind of a reuse community that meets once a month. And we're, we're creating a page that has all of the reuse community. We've kind of had a standardized approach to the take back in this, uh, the cleaning process. And so once that's ready, if you want to share that too, that would be, I think, helpful. Um, and we're trying to have a unified message around that because all of us uh, have come together and, and figured out what we feel like is the best um, protocols. Great. Thank you. Tom. Yeah, absolutely. So on the first question on cleaning, I think this is a critical one because that is what makes uh, reuse safe uh, or unsafe, uh, just like disposal. So on our end, you know, we take this quite seriously. We're actually going to be having a major announcement come out in the media next week or the, or the week following, uh, announcing a major global partnership with one of the world's biggest cleaning companies and logistics companies becoming Loop's uh, a primary backbone. Now, where we do have cleaning live today is uh, France and the, and the U.S., and we're about to open up our U.K. facility. And uh, if you walk into the facility, you'd see a bunch of first, you know, reusable packaging coming in, getting sorted and so on. That would be in dirty form. Uh, then we store each of these reusable packages, whether it's, you know, laundry detergent by Tide or, you know, uh, whatever it may be, ice cream by haagen until we get enough of a certain volume because the cleaning SOPs or processes change 
product by product. It really depends on what is the material it's made from, whether it's aluminum, stainless steel, glass, plastic, and what was the content inside. And then once we have enough of a certain container, um, it moves over into a proper clean room. So if you walked into the to the cleaning facility, it would look more like a silicon wafer facility from a you know PPE standard and so on. So it's a proper clean room where we vent out the air between every packaging run, uh, clean the pipes after every packaging run, thinking like things like allergens and so on. And then technology it's cleaned on, uh, it dispenses water and chemistry, either through ultrasonic, uh, pressure, or steam. And it depends again on those surfaces and content, which of those are deployed. But the most important part in cleaning is actually the drying uh, by far, because if you have any residual moisture, then mold can occur and so on. And then from there, it, has, it goes to a formal safety inspection with different sensors that would look for different uh, pieces, not just for cleaning, but if there's been any damage to the reusable container. And then from there it goes out to the uh, companies, whether it's like a Unilever or a Nestle or, or smaller organizations, and many of the larger ones will then inspect the package again, uh, as they would in any packaging, and then, and then uh, fill. So it's quite a strong process uh, uh, overall. And in fact, what I'm very proud of is it's so strong that we were protecting for other diseases and concerns that are way more potent than COVID, you know, like on dairy of listeria, you have all these other pieces. And so there had to be actually no upgrades whatsoever to the processes, whether for the people or for the overall protocol used, because of the protection was so high against other things we were worried about outside uh, COVID. And this is one of the nice things that we benefit from because we have a lot of large players, both big retailers and big brands, they audit the hell out of us. And they're always there looking well beyond country standards because that's one of the challenges in reuse is there in many cases are no auditable standards. There are no laws on how you have to clean something. Um, I mean, think about how a bar cleans a beer cup. They maybe just splash some water on it, give it right to the next person versus how a professional system may do so. And uh, so uh, working with, with organizations that hold these standards has been really good. We're also, uh, through the World Economic Forum, uh, coming up for this Davos uh, through a multi-stakeholder coalition of NGOs like the World Wildlife Fund, Greenpeace, but also you know, cleaning companies like Ecolab and others releasing a global set of uh, safety guidelines uh, that companies in reuse can look at to adopt to think about what are the guidelines to think about when deploying cleaning. That'll be available uh, around January. Uh, that will also include design guidelines that will all be publicly available. So, you know, fr from that point of view, at least that's how we've addressed it. And in closing, like what can folks do? Um, for us in specific, you know, if you're a consumer product company, come join Loop and create a reusable version of your product. If you're a retailer, um, contact us so you can help distribute those goods along with some leading global retailers. And if you're uh, neither, then uh, please support by voting for reuse when you make your purchase decision. That is maybe the most powerful thing an individual can do is vote for these systems by financially supporting them, not just Loop and anything to do with reuse. Uh, because if you don't vote for reuse and you buy a disposable good, you are not just voting for disposability, you're putting a no vote into reuse. And that is so important. And uh, my selfish plug will be Loop is going national in June uh, through Ecom. There's a couple of questions that were asked uh, on that. We're also going to be in-store uh, uh, in Portland with Kroger, uh, in the Northeast with Walgreens and others. So there'll be in-store opportunities as well. But that's how folks uh, can help. Awesome. And uh, I see a lot of detailed questions coming in about both Loop and Dispatch and how they work. And again, we'll, we'll do our best to compile some responses to these chat questions, but also loopstore.com and dispatchgoods.com are the websites for these organizations. And um, I want to especially thank Ben. I know that for so many of us having um, an expert of your caliber for a lot of the questions that are circling around right now is just a huge help. And so we appreciate your, your candor and your time with us and Tom and Lindsay, um, the work you're doing is just so important for all of our shared goals. So thank you for what you do every day. 
So we're gonna have more programs like this in the future. And so again, as Matt said at the beginning, if you wanna keep informed, be sure to follow Upstream, upstreamsolutions.org. You can follow our newsletter, find us on social media. And with that, we're just on time and I wanna wish everybody a wonderful day and thank you all so much for everything you're doing to support the throwaway free future. Take care. Thank you.